Amen. Paul tells the church in Philippi to stand firm. Is Paul just simply giving them something, uh, a word of encouragement that, you know, in general, stand firm? It seems like sometimes we take texts out of the Bible and we use them as words of encouragement for us to stay strong. Somebody once said, I can do all things through Christ in any verse taken out of its context. Now, when I was in sixth grade, the Christian school I went to, one of the things we had to do is we had to come up with a life verse. And I don't know, any of you all who grew up in evangelical churches may have remembered having a life verse. And um, seniors, when you graduate, you will still see me sign um, my letter to you um, with this life verse. But I realized that press on, which is one of Paul's messages, is not just simply about work harder and do more, although it really fits well with my Protestant work ethic, so it is the reason why I chose that text. When Paul is saying to stand firm, he is talking to a community and to a church that is living in a city that was created by the Roman Empire after a civil war. They had raised all of these military um, soldiers and they didn't want to bring them back to Rome and they're trying to figure out what to do with them. So they go and they build a city and they go and they put, um, they go and they put, um, they, they put the soldiers there. And so if you can imagine being a Christian in a city in which you are claiming Jesus as Lord and not claiming Caesar as Lord, how difficult and how challenging it is. And that's what Paul's message is to these people. Look, I understand that you are living in a complicated place in which there is a lot of external pressure for you to give more allegiance to Caesar in Rome than it is to give allegiance to Jesus, but stand firm. So that message of stand firm has a particular context. It's not just something that is in an abstract. A lot of times when we go and we tell people and try to encourage them, we use these verses as a way of trying to get them to deep, dig deep down into their own being. But how is it that we do this? How do we stand firm? How do we press on? How do we keep the faith when the going gets tough? In today's Old Testament reading, Abraham for simplicity's sake, I'm just going to call him Abraham, although in this text his name is Abram. Abraham was having a tough time. God had promised to Abraham um, that he was going to have a multitude of children, and it hasn't happened yet. And so Abraham is questioning God. God had promised him way back when that Abraham would be the father of many nations. Time had gone by. The earth had turned year after year. And Abraham is still sitting there going, God, I'm waiting. They got older and older. And they're like, God, come on, I'm not getting any younger. I was already on Social Security and Medicare when you called me to leave my land. You know, we're not putting time backwards. And so Abraham questions God. 
Now, I like this because I think a lot of times we feel like we are unable to question God. So what happens to Abraham when the going gets tough? He starts asking God, yo, God, I thought you said that this was going to happen. Why is this promise unfulfilled still? Maybe you have found yourself in that same position that when things get really hard, you begin to ask questions of God. Last week in the story group questions, one of the things was is a, a, a comment from Blaise Pascal who said that the questions of life are so difficult and so challenging that we oftentimes look for distractions to avoid asking those questions. And I think likewise that there is this um, embedded feeling that we are unable to ask God the deep questions of life, or why has this happened? Why is this going on? And so we just fail to do so. So God and Abraham in this text are having this conversation. Here's God promising yet again that Abraham's reward is going to be great, but Abraham's not seeing any proof. Abraham questions God when God promises yet again that Abraham's reward is going to be great. Abraham says, really, God? You promised, and yet I haven't seen any children. I'm going to have to leave what I have to Eliezer of Damascus, a slave that's born in my house. What's the deal here, God, Abraham wants to know. I need some clarity. I need some reassurance. You have promised me something. Now, I need to see some proof. Now, much to Abraham's chagrin, God does not go and give anything of real clarity to Abraham. He says, Abraham, let's go step outside. Look up into the sky. Do you see all those stars? Look towards heaven. Count the stars if you are able to count them, and so shall your descendants be. So the first thing we can learn about standing firm in the Lord is that it's okay to question God. It is okay to question God, but there's more. Abraham questions, and then Abraham is actually willing to listen to what God has to say. I think so often we ask questions of God. You know, heck, we even ask questions of other people, and we don't even wait for the answer. So take time to actually listen to the question that you are asking God. Now, at this moment, you might be saying, okay, you know, great, but God has never shown up in a burning bush. God has never told me to go outside to look up into the sky. You know, God's never parted a sea for me. Part of the problem lies in this, is that when we question God, we want very specific answers to our questions, and we don't get them. We assume that God has remained silent in the face of our questioning. I can remember clearly the moment, the day, the time, where I was and where I was sitting when I was wrestling about whether I wanted to leave my career and go to seminary and become an Episcopal priest. And what the word that I heard from God was, it'll be okay. God did not say yes. God did not say no. God said it's going to be okay. And I wanted clarity. God, no, tell me, is this what you want me to do? And so often when we question God and we wait and we listen for a word back from God, we don't get specific answers. 
God does not tell Abraham how he's going to become the father of countless descendants. He doesn't explain how the land that God has promised to Abraham will actually become Abraham's land. The answer that God gives to Abraham is deeper and wider and broader and more significant, not only for Abraham, but for everyone who has ever questioned God. When Abraham listens to God, the answers that he hears once again are only promises. But this time, Abraham has listened deeply, and he hears in the promises the answer that God is giving to him. The answer is that God is faithful, has been faithful, and will continue to be faithful to Abraham. And ultimately, the answer to every question that we will ever ask of God will be this very answer. I am God. I am faithful to you. The amazing thing about this conversation between God and Abraham is that God decides to show Abraham that God is faithful. So here's where the story gets really weird. God tells Abraham to take various animals and cut them in half and lay them out and form a pathway between the halves. What a bloody mess and it's gross. So Abraham does this and then he spends time shooing away the birds of prey who want to come and eat on the buffet that he has created out of animals cut in half. And then night comes. Abraham falls into this deep sleep and terrifying darkness descends on him. Now, if you remember for a moment, going back to Genesis chapter 2, in that story, when God creates all the animals to keep Adam company, but Adam still doesn't have a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and as he slept, God took one of Adam's ribs from the rib, that he, and he made, used that rib to make Eve Adam's partner. The Hebrew word for the deep sleep that, that Adam sleeps is the same word that describes Abraham's sleep in this story. A sleep that will bring something so new and so transforming that it develops a new partnership. So when Abraham comes out of this trance, he realizes that God, that he, the God that he believes in has shown his faithfulness by making an everlasting covenant with Abraham that's never going to be broken. Now, in this deep sleep or trance, um, Abraham sees the smoking pot and a flaming torch pass along the bloody path that Abraham had laid out. Now, remember how God leads the Israelites through the wilderness by a cloud by day and a flame by night. Well, here, God is a smoking pot and a flaming torch and goes through the bloody pathway. But what does this mean? We can't be sure, but one explanation that makes sense to me, and this explanation comes from Fleming Rutledge in her sermon, The Bloody Passage. She explains that in ancient times, covenants were sealed in this way. Animals were split apart and a pathway was made. And the two people making a covenant would walk through the pathway to indicate their willingness to be in covenant with each other and to show the understanding of what would happen to them if they broke the covenant. They would become like one of the dead animals on either side of the path. Now, here's an in another interesting fact. If the two people were equals, they would each go down the pathway, passageway together, 
But if there was one who was weaker than the other, only that person was required to go down the path of blood and gore and take the consequences if the covenant is broken. So here's God, the creator of heaven and earth, going along the path, making a covenant with Abraham. And Rutledge says there is nothing else like this in the history of religion. The almighty Lord of the universe enters into a relationship with his human partner under the conditions of human liability. Here in the passages of the story of salvation, God lays himself open to the full consequences of everything that will come after. Right? So normally the weak person goes first, and if the weak person falls short, then it falls on the weak person that's going to be punished. But here, God is the one who says the consequences will be mine. So all the consequences of our disobedience, our idolatry, the greed, the cruelty, the vanity, the selfishness of human beings, God says, I'll take those consequences. She goes on to say that after the people of God have disregarded their part in the covenant for thousands of years, God at last steps forward and on a hill outside of Jerusalem ratifies the covenant once and for all in the blood of his son. The fiery presence of Yahweh, she says, in the midnight spectacle of the bloody alley becomes the pouring out of the last drop of the blood of the Son of God. Paul says to the Philippians, my brothers, my sisters whom I love, who I long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Stand firm in the Lord. Question God. Listen to God. And most importantly, believe in God's faithfulness. Amen.